Welcome to another episode of Card Disadvantage. I am your faithful host, William. Joining me today is your other faithful host, Calvin. Hey, Calvin. What's up? And we are here today to talk to you about Commander. So, the Commander 2015 decks are coming out this November. In fact, by the time you are hearing it, dear listener, you probably already have the full spoiler. Cards might actually be in your hands right now. Hope you didn't pick up the blue ones. Because as we all know, the blue ones are stupid expensive, and as we'll see, history shows the blue ones just aren't that popular or fun to play with. It's either one of the two. I don't really know. I don't play blue a lot. But I would have to like argue with you on that, because there's been some blue ones that have come out that are really, really good. Yeah, well, like I said, they're either stupid, overpowered, and hard to find, or they're just not good, and they're everywhere. Like, you still find them on targets or anything like that. But, yeah, but, you know, that's because some people just don't know the value of what's actually sitting on their shelves. Yep. All right. So, in all seriousness, we, it is 2015. This is, in fact, the five-year anniversary for Commander products. Going all the way back to 2011 was when I first started playing Commander. And every year since then, we have gotten a Commander product of some sort or another from WotC. You know, just kind of that official WotC recognition and love. And I think that's actually really cool. Yep. Uh, like, I personally really enjoy the casual formats myself. This is also one of the few casual formats that has a history of its own prior to the pre-constructed decks. A large portion of the casual formats that we know and love have some type of uh, grassroots history. And Commander's no exception. But one of the main things for Commander is, uh, in comparison to its brethren, it has to, it's actually one of the more popular ones and has actually grown uh, exponentially since its introduction. Alright, so let's go ahead and back up just a little bit. We're gonna, let's go ahead and give you just a, you listener, a brief list history on what Commander is. You know, just a brief history, brief explanation. Because if you're listening to this for the first time, then for one, I'm actually kind of amazed that you picked up this particular podcast to pick up to find out what Commander is. So way back in y- yonder days of Yeet Board Alaska, we have one Sheldon Memory and his playgroup. Sheldon Memory, if you don't know, is a he he's actually just kind of a legend of a judge right right now. He has since retired. But way back when he used to live in Alaska and he had a regular playgroup that would just play casual magic. And then one day, they decide, you know what, let's go ahead and just play Giant Singleton Magic. Let's go ahead, get our collection together, and just make giant 100-card decks of true Singleton. Only one of each card, including basic lands. And they actually built these around the original Five Elder Dragons. Not these newfangled ones that you kids these days are playing on my lawn, get off of them. No, we are in fact talking about the Nicol Bolas brew. Uh, at this particular juncture, in the process of building these decks, these this group of judges and Sheldon and his friends came up with the name EDH, which stood for Elder Dragon Highlander, because they were playing with the five Elder Dragons, and it was Highlander because, you know, there could only be one of any particular card in your deck. 
this basically led to them coming up with a couple of casual rules. They played around with a few concepts, played around with a few ideas of what to do with it. And for the most part, they had fun. But inevitably, you know, you come across a couple of cards that in this format, even at a single copy, were still probably too damn powerful for what they should be doing. So they came up with a ban list, started telling, started talking about which cards should or should not be played. Then decided that the singletons for the basic mana was kind of, let's just say, like a little too restrictive. Because then a casual player who decided to jump in, if they didn't already have like a deck that already, if they didn't already have like 40 different lands that could potentially go into a deck, they couldn't really play. So after a few tweaks, after a few adjustments here and there, figuring out what's the best way to deal with the commander, or at the at that time it was considered general and figuring out how to deal with them and coming up with a general attacks, they pretty much came up with what is currently what we all know as Commander, just it was, you know, under the different name of EDH. Yep. The reason for that being that Highlander is kind of a trademarked intellectual property, and WotC would rather ha- avoid conflicts with that. So even before official Commander products were coming out, it was known on MitGo, Magic the Gathering Online, as Commander which is what the fantastic podcast by the name of Commander Cast gets its name from. So, Calvin, are you ready to go ahead and dive into these products? Yes, I am. So, let's go ahead and get right into this. So, the very first Commander product ever was also my big introduction to, I want to say actual, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say actual Commander, uh, let's just say directional and constructed and not just a big pile of where that I had in my junk rare box commander, if that makes any sense. That's understandable, because a lot of people, you when, when building commander decks, they have a tendency to go several different directions. It's a format where you can pretty much build any type of deck you want. Financially restricted, doesn't really work. You could basically build a commander deck out of draft fodder as long as you can get a hold of a single legend and find cards in that color combination that you want. So, you know, it's easy to build, like, a very cheap commander deck. You can always, like, you know, get more expensive with it by upping the mana base and buying better cards or whatever. So, But with the introduction of the pre-con, what Wizards of the Coast pretty much did was they created a product where, hey, you've got, like, what was it, 30 bucks, $35 or so in your pocket? That's fine. That's more than enough. You can buy this, and you'll have what would be considered a entry-level base commander deck. 100 cards, 30 bucks. Can't really argue with that. Granted, there's a couple of basics and a couple of other things in there kind of rounding it out. But they sweetened the pot by making it so that the pre-con actually came with new cards. That's right. And the 2011 set came with 51 new cards made specifically for multiplayer games, or so the back of the box says. I don't know anyone who actually played some of these in multiplayer, because some of these just kind of ended up not being too good. But they were interesting. They were new design space. So we're not going to go into... people just play with them doesn't mean that they weren't made. No, this is a true fact. They were made, and that is very important. So we're not going to go into detail about what each of these decks were, but we are going to touch on what they were. So the theme for 2011 was wedge decks, which was incredibly exciting, because before then, the only wedge commanders we had were the Planar Chaos Dragons. So the first one was Heavenly... Just for a clarification, the Planar Chaos Dragons. Remember how we were talking about the um, Elder Dragons earlier, Nico Bolas and his brood? Yes. Well, they were all what we currently known as shard colored. 
they were ally colored. There was one central color, and around it was the other two colors of its respected allies. So say, for instance, the dragon is primarily white. White's allies are green and blue. Nico Bolas, say, for instance, his primary color is black. Black's allies are red and black, or red and blue. The planar chase dragons, they were printed in a future site, I believe. The yeah, future it, was site planar, it was planar chaos. Because remember, those oh, yeah, are the dude. alternate reality versions of the invasion dragons, who are also shard colors. Right. So these alternate versions were basically not shard colored, but they were wedge colored, which means they're central color plus its two enemy colors. Yep, just like so it was in Cons of Tarkir. Yep. So say, for instance, your dragon's primary color is black. Its other colors would end up being uh, white and green, mm-hmm. because white and green are on the opposite color of the Magic the Gathering color pot, and so on and so forth. So if you look at the back of any Magic card, you can pretty much figure it out, because you pick a color, look at the other two cards, colors that are exactly opposite of it and not next to it. That's what the wedges are, and the shards are, you look at the color and the colors next to it, that's the shard. All right, so the commander decks themselves. So the first one, which people will know, which you newer players will know as the Mardu deck, is where Kalia the Vast came from. She was the girl who got me really into this whole thing, and I still have her today. And She's actually just a very beautiful full art for me. She's the one who drops angels, demons, and dragons into play whenever she attacks. And the other two, two new commands we've gotten there was Teriel, Reckoner of Souls, who's also Mardu Colors. But these decks also came with a cycle of enemy color commanders that were brand new. And this one was Bassandra Battle Seraph, which, if Kevin will tell you, is a very disappointing commander. Extremely disappointing. Yep. I mean, extremely disappointing. Oh. You have no idea how sad I was when I saw that card. Like, you know, at first, initially, I was like, you know what, maybe I could do something with this. I mean, you know, it seemed kind of cool because it like this weird combat effect kind of thing going on. That sort of thing. I was like, no, no, you you just suck. You see, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say she's actually not that bad. I mean, for one thing, there's Munda. Munda has proven that there can always be worse. Two, there are a lot of cards now, like Aetherize and Aether Spouse, that punish you for attacking. And Bassandra just says, no, 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 we're not going to have any of that sub about. All right, so let's go ahead and keep this wagon train rolling. The next one is the Teamer deck, and that one came with Riku the Two Reflections, who basically says, hey, you play a creature, we're going to go ahead and make a copy of that. Hey, you cast a spell, and we're going to go ahead and make a copy of that. So it's just a, a very, very powerful, very unfair card. But he was in there with another very unfair card, Anamar Soul of Elements, who, you, he's just a 1-1 one, one for 3, but he says whenever you cast a creature spell, he gets a 1-1 one, one counter. Well, okay, he just gets really big. That's not too big of a problem. Oh, and by the way, for each 1-1 one, one counter on him, your creature spells cost one colorless less. Well, okay, that's just really powerful. So what? Artifacts, Eldrazi, Morphs. And that's not just it. For some reason, this thing had protection from white and black. Now, for any listeners out there that don't understand how, why the protection from white and black for Animar solo element is actually relevant, the three primary ways of killing creatures is either A, some type of removal, like exile or kill effect, which is typically in black and white. White usually exiles things, black usually kills things. And the third primary way of dealing with something is by burn damage. And these are just like saying outside of combat, you know. So say, for instance, you already have like a Blightsteel Colossus. Blightsteel Colossus can tussle with him, all with Animar all day if it wanted to. 
but generally, because it has protection from white, it can't be exiled. Because it has protection from black, it won't be killed. Unless, of course, like a wrath spell happens to hit the board. And because of the way he's designed, he gets a lot of plus one, plus one counters on him, which means he's almost impossible to burn at a certain point. Which means he's a commander that, for the most part, is almost completely impossible for you to deal with in three of the major colors that are designed to deal with creatures. Yeah, you gotta think that that was thrown on there just so that the creature decks would have a chance. But little did they realize they were putting this on a blue card, so... What do you mean, little did they realize? It's blue. Blue's awesome. Speaking of blue, the enemy colored commander for this one was the Simic commander, Edric Spymaster Trest. Now, this guy is really powerful and popular because he's the one who says whenever a creature hits someone who's not you, its controller draws a card. In fact, he actually got banned in one-on-one commander because it would just be play a bunch of small guys, draw a lot of cards, and play a lot of tempo and counter magic. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, the so, next... Let's see here. Uh, I'll, I'll take the next one. You want the next one? All right, go ahead. So, the next one, I uh, don't know what cons of Tarkir clan this aligns with. Abzan. Abzan? That's yep. green, black, and white? Yep. So the next deck is Counterpunch. That's the Abzan color. It's green, black, and white for any of the newer listeners. And its commander, by choice, was Gave, Guru of Spores, which, let's be honest, might as well have just been Gave, Guru of Combo Win. It Isn't was a that... deck built around, like, tokens and plus one, plus one counters and all these other things. Uh, let me just hit on these other two cards that came with it, the legendary creatures. There was Carador, the Ghost Chieftain. My boy. And Vishkow, the Blood Arbiter. Uh, Vishkow is black-white. He was, like, a vampire. Uh, Carador was a ghost centaur, I believe. Yeah, he is a ghost centaur. He's a very shiny ghost centaur, because he actually got a judge foil promo. He's one of the few judge promos I have. We haven't gotten that far. Um, so with these particular commanders, the thing for Gave, the guru of combos, is, is that because of the fact that he deals with tokens, and because of the fact that he deals with plus one, plus one counters, and because of how easily it is to get tokens and plus one, plus one counters on him in the colors of green and white, there are plenty of times where if you have Gave as your commander and just leave him on the board, just play the deck, there will inevitably, inevitably come a point where you accidentally just win. You know, you don't even see the combo, but there's going to be some type of two or three cards that's on the field that combines with Gabe with his ability to move counters and create counters and make tokens that just makes it so that at this point you're playing solitary because nobody else is going to get a chance to do anything ever again because they will all be dead when you're finished. I actually, when I first started playing, it was a Rift deck, but I turned it into a Gabe deck because I thought he was just so cool for all the token stuff. I would routinely combo off win without realizing it, and the combos actually hurt my head so much I took the the deck apart so I wouldn't have to deal with it. And as far as uh, Carador is concerned, he's a very popular commander because he has this ability where his commander cost is reduced. Actually, let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. In the in Commander, there's this thing where before it was the Exile Zone, but now with the Commander product, it's now known as the Command Zone. So your commanders don't have to go to Exile unless you want them in Exile for some reason or another. So while your commander is in the Command Zone, whatever their converted mana cost is, say, for instance, it's green, white, black for Carador, you pay green, white, black, and you can cast them from your Command Zone anytime you could cast a normal creature. So, you pay three, mana, Carador shows up, and you have your your ghost centaur running around. 
Now, the thing for Carador was is that he was a commander that had an ability. Now, now no, hold on. Now, the thing here is is that in commander, when your commander dies, you have the option to let him go or let your commander go from either the field to the graveyard or go to exile or wherever it would have gone. Or you could say, you know what? I don't want him there. I'm going to send him back to the command zone. With the downside being that next time you decide to cast him from the command zone, you have to pay an additional two colorless mana for each time he's been cast. So that means inevitably Gabe would go from three to five to seven to nine and all the way up until either the game is over or you've decided to stop paying mana to cast him. But Carador is special, really special, because mm-hmm. he's one of the very first commanders that had this ability where his commander cost could be reduced due to his effect. So if you have creatures in the graveyard, for each creature you had in the graveyard, it would reduce the amount of colorless mana that you would spend on him. You would still have to pay to three, but you could potentially never pay, you could have him die like four or five or six times and never pay nine or eleven or thirteen mana for him. You just cast him for three mana because you have a graveyard full of creatures. And the way that then, works, dear listener, if I may do my, put on my judge hat, my judging shirt real quick, is the tax goes on top of its normal casting cost. So Carador normally costs like eight mana. So the second time you would cast him, it would cost ten mana. It's like adding up all the taxes and stuff when you go grocery shopping. You add on the taxes, and then you start giving the cashier your coupons. That's what's going to reduce the cost. So I very rarely pay more than four mana to cast Carador because I have so many creatures in my graveyard. Even when I've cast them like three or four times, that cost reduction is just incredibly powerful, especially when you've got a dredge deck. So, but yeah, so it's the counter punch deck was one of the more powerful decks from the original cycle. Let's see here. But seeing as how we are talking about the more powerful deck, let's jump into what was which predominantly considered the weaker deck, shall we? By all means, go ahead. This would be the Political Puppets deck. Now, for newer listeners, Political Puppets was Jeskai color, red, white, and blue. Or, at the time, America colors, because everybody considered red, white, and blue to be America before we got a chance to actually toss names onto it. Didn't you review this one with Andy and the crew? Yes, I did. This was the... Because during the time when this came out, this was this box that I got a hold of, and it was the one that I got to play with, because I personally love red, and I personally love white. And blue was a color that I have no problem with, but I didn't want to play red, white, black. I should have went red, white, black, but I went red, white, blue. It's the Political Puppets deck. It's commanded by Zedru the Greathearted, who is extremely caring and an extremely loving commander who loves to throw things away and do all kinds of stuff. So what ended up happening for Zedru is is that Zedru pretty much had this ability where she could give cards that you controlled to other players, but at the cost of you now getting to draw a card for every one of your permanents that somebody else controlled. Now, this may sound like a bad thing, but you could also gain life, and there was other ways in the deck to give things away and take control of the fact and regain control of your things if you needed to. But it was mostly, as the title, as the name of the deck predicted, a political deck. It's designed where you make deals with other players. I'll give you this, don't attack me for this. Because in a group game of Commander, there's typically about four to five players. And every so often, when you're down on your luck, instead of just getting beaten down, you need to be able to convince other people not to attack you or other people to deal with a uh, threat on the board that you currently don't have an answer for or whatever the case may be. Now, the primary reason that I picked this deck up is because of the next legend, which is Ruhand of the Fomori. 
Ruhan was a really huge creature. What was he like? A seven seven for four, I think. He is in fact a seven seven for four, and we can keep, as long as we keep the PG thirteen, it's fine. Yeah, I'll keep it. I'll keep the swearing and cursing to a barest of minimum. But he was a, you know, Ruhan's a seven seven for four, and basically he's blind. If you look at his card, he has a blindfold over where his eyes would be, and the problem for Ruhan is, is that even though he's big and he's blind, he's also red and he's white, so he attacks a lot and he's also aggressive. But to be politically correct, since he's blind, he never really actually knows who he's going to attack. So when he goes out into battle, the amount of opponents you have, you pretty much figure out a way to determine which one of them are through some type of randomization, potentially rolling a dice, flipping a coin, try to guess a number, whatever decision-making you can come up with, as long as he is attacking somebody at random. And inevitably, he swings and he hits somebody for seven and then comes back. And he has to attack each turn. And the card that came in this deck was the... Uh, double color, off color card that came in his deck was Nin the Pain Artist. She was a nice way of dealing damage and drawing cards, and she could deal damage to creatures, and whoever she dealt damage to would draw those kind of cards, would draw that amount of cards for the effect. Nin the Pain Artist, best friends with Stuffy Doll. Yes, because you could burn your Stuffy Doll for X and draw X cards, and then Stuffy Doll would take that X it got burnt with and send it to somebody else. Very useful. And since you're in blue, you could blink Stuffy Doll in and out and figure out a way to enchant it or have him equip it to somebody else at a certain point. Very good times. So, uh, uh, all right, so we've right, got, part of the next deck. All right, so we've got uh, the Saltite deck last. It's the green-blue-black one, and the headliner for this one is the Mimeoplasm. It was very powerful. Ooh, so incredibly powerful. When this guy came out, came out, it was like, oh, he's got a T-Rex arm, he's a clone, like, that's really cool. Since then, we have learned to fear the Mimeoplasm. You do not let the Mimeoplasm touch you. When the Mimeoplasm touches you, it will assimilate you, add you to itself, and then proceed to absorb the rest of your playgroup's people. It's not a very pretty scene. So the Mimeoplasm is a creature that says, as he enters play, he's going to be a super clone. We're going to exile a creature from any graveyard, just just any graveyard, it doesn't matter who's. And Mimeoplasm is going to be a copy of that creature, you know, just like a normal clone. Oh, but wait, he's not done yet. Uh, you see that little Drazi over there, you know, you know how that Ulamog doesn't have the uh, shuffle in effect? Well, let's go ahead and exile him too, because he's in the graveyard. And now Mimeoplasm gets all of his power as plus one, plus one counters. So we're just going to take these two creatures, one for some awesome effect and one for just for bulk and size and squish them together. And you know what? Why don't we go ahead and make that copy of Scytherix? So now you get like a 14-14 Scytherix that can give haste and regenerate itself. That, that, that seems okay. Or if you decide to do it the other way, you could have a gigantic Ulamog that now has an additional, like, what? How big was Scytherix? Seven? Uh, Six? He's, he's like a four power because he has to have three uh, hits on infect to win. Okay, so Ulamog, your giant Ulamog that was a, I believe Ulamog's a 10-10, correct? Ulamog's a 10-10. So you have an Ulamog who's gone from 10-10 to a 14-14, uh, still with all of his processing powers and all of the everything that he's currently got written on him. Basically, it's just Ulamog with counters, but now he has a dragon arm. Yeah. that He has a dinosaur arm. Mimeoplasm is just incredibly powerful, and arguably in the three best colors in the EDH. Now, so, before we go too much further, out of these five decks, I will have to. Well, hold on. I want to give the listeners a rundown of how they kind of rank. Well, hold on. Let's go ahead and get to the other two commanders that came in the Soul High deck first, real quick. 
Uh, yeah, I completely forgot there were other commanders in the Soul Tide deck because Mimeoplasm was so this overly yeah. showed up. Yeah, you know how like when the shards came out, everyone was playing Nekuzar, and how when the 2014 deck came out, everyone was going Gaga for the red deck. Yeah, that's what Mimeoplasm was for this one. But, but I, they don't know anything about that. We haven't gotten to those decks yet. They might know. This is this is teasing. I am being a professional and teasing the future segments. So, Alright, all right, fine. Go ahead. So, away. so the other two commanders we had were Damia, Sage of Stone, who is my Sultai commander and one of my absolute favorites because she plays very well with Omniscience. So Damia is a 7-cost Gorgon who has Death Touch, as Gorgons are wont to do. She's a 4-4, but she's also a wizard. And when wizards are involved, shenanigans go down. She says, skip your draw step. At the beginning of your upkeep, you basically refill your hand. So you take your max hand size of 7, and then you draw until you have 7. So Damia is really cool, and actually encourages you to play as many spells as you can, because she's got your back. She'll help you recover. Refill that hand next turn. And I actually built mine because I wanted a cool deck that I could play with Omniscience, which of course just says you drop everything in your hand. And then you have Skullbriar the Walking Grave. Skullbriar. Skullbriar was amazing. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? Skullbriar... Yeah, do you want to talk, talk like about Skullbriar? Yeah, okay. Skullbriar the Walking Grave was, he's the, what's this, Golgari? Yep, he's green, black, black. black. He's only two colors. He's, that's it. Boom. Green, black. And he has this ability where when he comes into play, when he, he has haste, and he's like a 1-1, one, one, I believe. Yep. And when he attacks, when, when he deals combat damage, he gets a plus one, plus one counter on him. Mm-hmm. Now, two mana for a, a one, one with haste that turns into a two, two. That's fair. That's grizzly bear status. But Skullbride Walking Grave had this other piece of text on him that basically said that whenever a counter is placed on him, unless he goes back into your deck or back into your hand, he will remain, those counters will remain on it. So, so, say for instance, so the exact wording is counters remain on Skullbriar as it moves to any zone other than hand or library. Right. So what happens is Skullbriar comes down, he attacks, he hits hastily, hits somebody, he gets a plus one, plus one counter on him, right? Someone decides, you know what, I don't like that. They shock him for two men, for two damage. He goes to the graveyard, but that plus one, plus one counter is still on him. And since he's a legendary creature, if he got exiled, that plus one, plus one counter would still be on him. Or if he was a legendary creature and ended up in your command zone, the plus one, plus one counter would still be on him. So if you recast him again, he'd be a 2-2 now with haste that would smash and then become a 3-3 and so on and so forth. This was one of the first times, first iterations where plus one, plus one count, where counters in general continued to exist out on a card after the card left the field. Yeah. So this was, this was before, back when we could still tuck our commanders. There used to be a rule that said, if your commander would be sent to your hand or deck, it actually just has to go there. None of this go putting it back into the commands and stuff. Now that the tuck will no longer exist, Skullbriar is just a ridiculously scary commander. In fact, back when I would play with my girlfriend's EDH playgroup, you know, I had a friend who played Skullbriar, and we were just regularly in the field of, Skull- of Skullbriar. In fact, the only way to shut down Skullbriar permanently is like with a Nevermore or a Declaration of Not, or to just dump a whole mess of minus one, minus one counters on Skullbriar, because now Skullbriar just has those counters forever and they can never play them again. So the way that basically works is, like, say, for instance, Skullbriar has four minus one, minus one counters on him, either from Infect or from Wither or from some type of, like, spell that might happen to... Like, what's the black spell that puts minus one, minus one counters on things? Uh, doesn't... Black Suns, yeah. yeah, Black Suns, yeah. 
Yeah, black sun zenith puts minus one, minus one counters on it. It's like double black and X, I think it is. Or is it triple black and X? No, it's the double black. But, uh, so basically, Black Sun Zenith is X double black. It's a sorcery. When you play it, it puts X minus one minus one counters on all creatures, and then it shuffles back into your library. With Skullbriar, if X is, like, bigger than whatever he had on him, the minus one minus one counters knock off the plus one plus one counters he had on him. And if he happens to, say, have three minus one minus one counters on him, when you cast him, he comes in as minus three minus three and dies to state-based action and goes back to your command zone. The only way to save Skullbriar at that point is if you had some type of enchantment that said all creatures you control get plus four or plus three or whatever. Just or perhaps to keep him alive. Or perhaps some sort of creature that gives your creature counters as it comes into play. Hmm. Right. Something along that line. Oh, damn it, William. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Calvin, you wanted to go ahead and give like a quick ranking for how these decks were going. Right, so for the initial five decks, the ranking system pretty much went. The Devourer for Power was the most popular. Everybody loved the Mimeoplasm because he was amazing, and he was the, it was basically the deck that you would see purchased the most because everybody wanted a copy of Mimeoplasm, and you couldn't make it to any commander table without at least seeing one to two Mimeoplasm decks. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, political puppets. It was the decks, it was the deck of the, it was the runt of the litter. It was a smaller deck. Not many people purchased it. Not many people liked it. A few people did enjoy it. Like myself, I did enjoy actually playing with it. But in the same token, it's well, a difficult one. You didn't get much mana fixing in it. It was kind of hard to play. And unless you were like an advanced player, you might have just bought it and not enjoyed it at all, depending on how it went. Counterpunch was potential was basically the most powerful deck because of the easy combos that you could get off and easy wins you could get from it. Heavy Heavenly Inferno was the sleeper deck because the commanders in it was Kalia, uh, Torelia, Tariel, and uh, Bassandra. Mm-hmm. No one liked Bassandra really that much. I mean, some people might have, but very little people ever actually liked Bassandra. Tariel, the Reckoner of Souls, was also very unpopular, and Kalia was the only reason for really purchasing the deck because it was angel demon and dragon themed and the other two commanders really didn't play well with angels demons and dragons i mean you could use them but it didn't work and it became a nice little theme deck but because of kalia it became very powerful so it's one of those decks where when the when the product came out and people were purchasing it and the deck was available no one really bought it but after the product no longer became available it became almost impossible to get heavy heavenly inferno but heavenly inferno was a sleeper deck people enjoyed and actually liked it and mirror mastery was the middle child it didn't like falter it didn't really go down and it wasn't unpopular people did buy it but you know it really didn't like shrug much but it did have like three really powerful commanders in it the deck in and of itself was okay but the commanders were the primary reason you would have fought it you buy it take the commanders and then use the others for draft fodder or toss them or trade fodder or whatever the case may be so which one of the five was your personal favorite my personal favorite i in out of the five decks the decks that i i played the mirror master deck i played counterpunch i owned political puppets i owned devour for power and i never got to play heavy inferno i've never cast Kalia. I enjoyed the Devourer for Power. I really liked the political puppets because I enjoyed Ruhan the most, and he became the commander that I ended up using a lot during that time frame because I loved the idea of him being able to attack people when it not being my fault. So it's nice to have a commander that I can smash people with continuously throughout the game, and no one can actually look at me and judge me for it. Like, hey, man, you know, it's him. He, he He's the blind warrior. I can't control him. No one can control him. 
secretly now I could control him if I chose to, but you know, at the time he was just amazing. So if I had to go with my favorite, I'd say it'd be a toss up between the two of those, on, depending on which day I'm, what, depending on how I'm feeling that day. It'd be Devour Power or Political Puppets. Well, for me, your favorite, which, was, which, was your, which one was your favorite one? Well, it was without a doubt Heavenly Inferno. Um, I I believe I bought the Counterpunch one at some point because uh, uh, of a reason I'll get to in just a second. But Heavenly Inferno was the one I had my eyes on from the get-go because Tario Reckoner's Souls was just a legendary angel. And red-white was already my favorite color combination. But that was also when I was going through my anti-blue phase where it's like, oh, blue is the dick color. It doesn't let people do anything. So I was actually really excited to get Tario. But then when I got the deck, my now roommate Tario was like, no, 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 no. You know, you, you play Kalia. You, you play the, you play Kalia as your commander. Trust, 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 trust me on this. You play Kalia. And I did trust him. And the rest, as they say, is history on that particular boat. Now, the reason I got the counterpunch one was actually partly because the deck paid for itself back then. So, Calvin, when you think of, like, the original 2111 cycle, there are three cards that come to mind in my mind as being significant. Which card do you think I'm talking about in this instance? Which card from the counterpunch deck? Gabe? No. What was it? It was, in fact, Scavengers. Oh, yeah, Scavenging was all... Yeah, this was the first time Scavenging was ever showed up. It was one of the 51 originals. That's right. It was one of the original 51 cards. And it made such a huge splash in Legacy that it, that people were buying the Counterpunch deck just for Scavenging News. And I, yeah, that's a trend that we'll have to be touching on as this show continues. Yep, but we don't have that much time because we're apparently already an hour in. I do want to get to the other ones, although... I don't know how much we'll have to say on the other ones. But I did want to hit on two other really important cards. One... The other ones don't have that many legends, so... Okay, yeah, that's true. So, the second card I wanted to touch on was Soul Ring. This was a really big way to, to reintroduce Soul Ring to newer players. In fact, we have seen a Soul Ring in every edition of Commander Preconstructed decks since this. And it has been fantastic. I love that Soul Ring art. Mm-hmm. Soul Ring is a one-mana artifact. You can tap it, and it produces two colorless mana. And it's pretty much like one of the flagship cards for the format. It really is. Like, this is really the only format where you can play a Soul Ring outside of Vintage. Oh, yeah. And this was also the first time we saw the Command Tower. It was a card specifically made for this format that can be played in Vintage, but you probably wouldn't want to, and you can tap it. It produces any color. It it produces one color of any mana for what your commander is. Yep, and it does absolutely nothing in every other format, which I think is amazing. So, let's go ahead. So that was 2011. Uh, overall, it was a really fantastic thing to make. Like, maybe the, like, we did have a couple of hiccups every now and then, like the political puppets, and maybe and Heavenly Inferno was a, a sleeper deck, but it was also missing some important stuff. Like, there were just a lot of angels and demons in there that you wanted to play in Kalia, but did nothing if you used Kalia to actually play them. Right. So, fantastic and set, and we got new commanders the for all the legends. And one of the main things, the primary thing I want to say here for the 2011 Commander set was it was a smash hit with Wizards. It sold well. It became probably one of their biggest best-selling individual, like, non-set-based products. Because prior to this, they had, like, Plane Chase, and they had Arch Enemy, and they had a couple of other things. And now they currently have, like, Modern Masters for their summer product, and Commander was considered a part of their summer product lineup. Initially, it was supposed to be something that rotated in and out with the other stuff. You're going to get Commander one 
one year, then probably get Plane Chase, then get Arch Enemy, maybe the Modern Masters. Commander would rotate back around sooner or later. We'd end up getting Arch Enemy again. It was supposed to be among that cycle. But because of its extreme popularity, Wizards of the Coast decided that, you know what? Everybody loves Commander. It's their new go-to casual format. So they decided they wanted to print one every year from that point forward. With the exception of 2012, because by the time they got the numbers back, they didn't get a chance to actually build a Commander product for that year. But they did make something for us, though. Yes. So on that note, Calvin, what did we get from this Commander's Arsenal? I assume by that name it had some pretty good stuff. Well, basically what you got were 10 oversized cards, uh, 100 sleeves with, I believe, Planeswalker symbols on the back. A life counter that went up to, I think it was 99 or 40, something along that lines. You got these little token things that no one ever figured out what to do with. And you got 18 premium foiled magic cards. Several of these cards were some of the previous commanders from the other set, because the original set, the commanders didn't come foiled. They just came. And you got oversized cards that were foiled, but the commanders weren't foiled. So here they took, like, Halia, and I think it, um, they made her foiled. I think they put Marath in there. Marath, I think, came in there foiled no, as well. No, the Marath was a year after that. Oh, yeah. Marath was the year after that? Yes. Who's it on something else? Uh, right, well, it, was know, Mimeoplasm. Yeah, it was Mimeoplasm. Yeah, Mimeoplasm. Why did I say Marath? Yeah. Well, Mimeoplasm was in there. He was foiled. Kali was in there. She was foiled. We got a couple of legend creatures that were in there that were foiled and a few other, like, commander staples. Well, that would be considered, like, rare or mythic or something like that. Yep. But there I'm... was one big problem with the arsenal. Wait, there was a problem with... Uh, but everything here sounds so amazing. What could ever be the problem? But, well, actually, I'll take that back. There were two big problems with the arsenal. The first problem with the arsenal was, one, it was extremely expensive in comparison. Uh, pretty much it was like a from-the-vault set at the time, where it came out, and I believe its initial mark price was seventy nine ninety five. It was something like that, yes, I remember. And because of that, to purchase it, you had to have roughly $100, because your local shop would then bump that seventy nine ninety five mark market um, MSRP to potentially $100. So you had to spend $100 to get 18 cards and all the other stuff that I mentioned. But then also, it was a limited print run as well. Actually, Which the means, original the original commander decks were like that too. Right, but the original commander decks was like that. But they are they printed enough of them where people could continuously get them, and you could also get them at like Walmart and Target and other locations of that nature. Yeah, no, these were just for the game shops. Yeah, but the commander commanders arsenal came out and it went straight to and was specifically for game shops, and it was a limited print run. So if you didn't get it in its initial run, chances are you were not going to ever get anything out of it unless you went to the secondary market. I still remember the game store I was going to at that time got two of them. Yeah. Just two. And those were both offered off as raffle purchases. You would literally have to win the raffle for the chance just to buy one. Yep. So that Carmander Arsenal was very unpopular. It was only, it was popular amongst like the high roller, big dollar commander players, the people who like to foil out all their decks, who had Kalya as their commander and needed a foil copy or whatever the case may be. Or this is where we got, um, what was that white card we talked about when we did the resurrection deck? Um, the creature from, um, 
King, uh, Borders Three Kingdom. Um, I forget. Well, if he comes back to me, I'll talk about him later, but he's not that important. Although, on that note, I am still looking for a Commander's Arsenal call yet. So, if you have one, we'll offer you a good bit of store credit at Cardigan and me in Rylesburg, Ohio. It's a great store. You should probably come check us out. So, enough of the Arsenal. Let's move on to more Commander product. Because the year after that, we got the Commander 2013. Ooh, this one is always going to have special memories because of what we did for the Commander Cast Review Show. Right. So, Commander 2013. Let me paint the picture for you. So, we have been waiting two years for the next release of Commander products. Commander's Arsenal was released. No one actually got it. We were waiting for one more year. And when it finally came out, we were so happy. Because the theme for this one was Shards which Calvin explained earlier, it's a color and it's two allies. This one also had 51 brand new cards. And oh, But of those 51 brand new cards, previously we got roughly three new legends. It was the two commanders that could run the deck, a command, a dragon of that color combination, and a double-colored legend creature who happened to also be in the deck. Oh, and Calvin, something that we forgot to talk about with 2011 was the uh, mechanic. Because 2013 had Tempty Offer, but 2011 had Joint Forces. Yeah, that was one. That was Joint Forces for a quick wrap up. Basically, there were cards that were in each of the deck that had abilities on them where you could play the card and the other people at the table had the option to pay mana into or do something with that as well. And if they did, they would also gain the bonus for it. So say, for instance, uh, the Dragon Wagon which is what I refer to him as. I can't remember what his actual name is. But it was a dragon that had joint forces, and it had fire breathing, where you could attack, and if you paid mana into it, it became like uh, it got plus one, plus O oh for each mana you put into it. But the other players at the table also had the option to put mana into it as well. So say, for instance, William is getting away with the game, and I slap down the dragon wagon, and I attack him. Me, Mark, and Clay could all chip our mana in to make the dragon wagon bigger. And we all jump on a dragon bandwagon, and dragon hits William and knocks him completely out the game if we so chose if he successfully made it all the way through. Yep. Now, see, the problem with this was often because you could get something without having to pay anything. Because, like, there were draw spells with this and ramp spells. You would often just say, no, I'm good, because then it's less than everyone else is getting with bare minimum involvement from you. Uh-huh. Tempting Offer, on the other hand, was the new mechanic they did for Commander 2013, and I still see plenty of those cards being played. So, Calvin, do you want to tell us what Tempting Offer did? Uh, Tempting Offer, this was the cycle where you would play a card. Wait, Tempting Offer, the Offer cards, the offerings were the cards where it's like, if I play the card, I choose a play, I get effect, I get to do my thing. And then there was a sec, then I choose a player and they get to do the thing in which I chose them to do. No, 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 that so was they, the next year. This was the one where it's like, I do, like, oh, oh, no, 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 I do my thing and then you have the option to put something in, you get something out of it, but I get more out of it. Yes. Correct? That's exactly right. it. So, tempting offer basically, like, say for instance, there's a resurrection one. I cast it, I get to resurrect a creature from my graveyard. The offer now becomes that my opponents also have the option to resurrect a creature from their graveyard as well. But for each opponent that resurrected a creature, I would get an additional creature. So in a group of four, I cast Tempting Offer. If everybody at the table went for a creature, I got four, and everybody else got one. 
or if two people did it, I got three, and one person got one, and the other person got one, and the other person got nothing. So in the end, it's still more beneficial for me to play it, and if you choose to do it, I get a bonus. But, you know, you don't have to, but it doesn't, like, negatively affect me. Whereas with the previous cycle, say, for instance, the joint forces, I put all the mana into it, everybody gets a bonus, but at the end of it, only my mana is spent. Yeah, I felt like this was a much better multiplayer mechanic than joint forces was. Right. The tempting offers, all of them were really powerful. There was, like, a draw card one, I think. I believe the red one was like some type of um. Actually, the token. blue one was a you get a copy of a creature you control. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a copy, and they can get a copy of their creature, but then you get two. Mo- you can get another copy of another creature. It was great. Yeah. All right. So you ready to dive into these decks? Yeah, let's go through it because since these ones only have a single commander, we can knock this one out a lot quicker. Actually, no. These ones still came with two. But well, they had more commanders, but they only had a single new commander. No, they had two new commanders each. They did? Yeah. So we'll go ahead and start with the Bant one. Hold on. Green, white, blue. And this one, the highlight commander was... Yeah, they did. Yeah, this one did come up with two commanders. That's right. I forgot. It was the 2014s when we only got the one commander. Sorry. So the Bant one has the Rebbe, Imperial Tactician. She's a bird wizard who, when she comes... So she costs three. Whenever she enters play or deals... Or so she's a little like Edric. Whenever she comes into play, you can tap or untap target permanent, and then you get that sim effect every time one of your creatures hits an, uh, one of your opponents. But what made the Revy so weird and powerful is that you could actually just kind of flash her in by activating her ability. One white, blue, green. You may put the if you may. You know, I'm, I'm going to read this directly from the Oracle. Put the Revy onto the battlefield from the command zone. That's an ability that literally does nothing else in any other format, but also guarantees that the Revy's just always going to cast four mana, which is incredibly powerful. The other commander is Rune the Hidden Realm, who is a 4-4 Rhino Soldier for five mana, with Vigilance and Trample, says, pay two, tap him, exile target creature until the end of the next turn. And then the third commander for that one, the Reprint commander, is Rabinia Soul Singer, who is also five mana, and says, tap Gain control of target creature for as long as Ravinia is tapped, you don't have to untap her during your untap step. So this really sets the... So like the 2011 decks before them, these decks follow the pattern of, okay, we're going to go ahead and give you two co- brand new commanders to help spice up this color combination. And then we want to go ahead and throw in another com- commander who's a reprint to show you that, hey, there's some old, older com- uh, cards that you can play with that are also really cool. Maybe give them some updated artwork, stuff like that. And I actually really appreciate that for Vinya because that new art is just so much more beautiful than that old art was. Let's see here. What's another, what's the next deck here? Uh, is Eternal um, Bargain? Let's see. Hold on. I wanted to see, think if there was something else I wanted to say. I, thought there, I think there's... Um, something else to say about a, the Evasive Maneuvers deck. That's the deck that William's discussing. Uh, Derevi, very powerful. Very, to some, to some players, very annoying. Because it's one of those commanders where no matter what you do to it, it's always four. So it's almost as if you've done nothing. And its partner, Rune of the Hidden Realm, became the flagship commander for Blink decks. Uh, Blink decks are decks that are based around cards that take a card that's in play, remove it for for a set period of time, and then bring it back to play. So if you had a bunch of enter the battlefield effects or creatures that did things or got some type of bonus or whatever the case may be, you can just keep taking things in and out. If the creature was marked for death, someone's trying to pass it or doomblade it, you could just, nope, just blink him out. The doomblade technically countered and the creature just returns at whatever its set time would have been. 
I have to say this because some have like the put it in to play and then return it right now. Some had the take it out of play and return it at the end of turn and some blink effects have like take it out of play and return it at the beginning of your next turn or whenever. So. Alright. So let's go ahead and go on to the next one. Uh, did you want this one or should I do it? The next one was, uh, Eternal Bargains, I think it was. The yeah. White, like, Esper. Blue. Yeah, you can take that one because that has a card in it that I'm pretty sure you're going to want to talk about. Oh yeah, that's right. So, Eternal Bargain was the Esper one, and that came with everybody's favorite lazy chairman, Aloru Aegis Esketic. So, so many altars. So oh, many yeah. altars came out. So, he's a 4-5 giant who costs 6 mana, but that's okay, because you're not actually going to cast them. He says, at the, actually, this is another one where I had to actually just look at the oracle text to get the wording right. At the beginning of your upkeep, you gain 2 life. So, on, whenever you gain life, you may pay 1. If you do, draw a card, and each opponent loses 1 life. So, already we have a very powerful draw engine for what's probably going to be a control deck, and, yeah, but the guy's like 6 mana, he's 4 or 5, control decks don't really want to do that until super late in the game, so why are they playing him? Well, like the Revy, this Aloru has a very strange interaction with his command zone. At the beginning of your upkeep, if Aloru is in your command, in the command zone, you gain 2 life. He literally just says, you are going to start the game at 42, and whoops, now suddenly you're 70 because no one hit you, and no one was actually checking to see what your life was. Now, the second commander for that one is actually my Esper commander. Actually, I think four, yeah, four of my shark commanders came from this set. Just goes to tell you how impressed I was with all these new cards. The second commander is Sidri Galvang Genius who for 3 mana pulls off a very good Karna imitation. She pays blue to turn any non-creature artifact into a creature whose power and toughness is equal to its converted mana cost. But in case that wasn't enough, let's go ahead and say, for white and a black, target artifact creature gets lifelink and death touch until end of turn. Yeah, that seems really good on Dark Darkzillian God. Alright, I'm now set for the next deck. Alright, go ahead. Uh, so the next deck on our list is Mind Seas. It's the blue-black-red deck. The commander for it was Jaleva, Nefarious Scourge. Nefarious Scourge. It's a place in Innistrad. Uh, well, you know, whatever. Who cares about flavor? It's a vampire. She was a wizard, and she has this ability where she's, she's basically a 1-3 flyer. But when she enters the battlefield, players would exile, like, the top X cards of their library, where X was equal to the mana spent to cast Jaleva. So as your commander, every time she died and she got more commander cost to her, more people, the X would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And whenever she attacked, you had the ability to cast any instances or sorceries that were exiled with, that were exiled with it, with, um, outpaying its mana cost. So it was a blue, black, red legendary creature that allowed you to play white and green spells if you so saw fit without having to worry about the mana for it. But as she might be the marquee card for this deck, Everybody knows that the MVP of the deck was actually Nekrazar, the Mayan Razor. He's another one I have. And Nekrazar was two colorless, blue, black, red, legendary zombie wizard, 2-4. At the beginning of each player's draw step, that player draws an additional card. Whenever an opponent draws a card, Nekrazar deals one damage to that player. So, Calvin, it seems like this is kind of the antithesis to a group hug deck. Yeah, it's basically a group hug deck is where you're doing things to help the table out. Someone's low on mana, you're getting a mana. Someone's low on creatures, you're giving them creatures. Nekrazar is in a giving mood as well. Like, he's giving people cards, <laughs> but 
in the same token, what he's also giving is pain. He and d- lots of it. He, I don't want none of what you're selling. It's basically. Oh what yeah, yeah. So. Oh, you don't want to like, You don't want to draw a card, William. I I don't know what's wrong. Like I just want to let people draw cards, and then they punch me in the face for it. Like, like you know what? How's about this? I will set the deck up so you can draw like seven cards. That well, that, Does that just sound sounds good. Drawing, you you get to draw an extra seven cards a turn. Well, that just sounds fantastic. Kalia loves drawing cards. Yeah, good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. So take that seven damage, okay. and I'm going to go right ahead and let the next player take his seven cards, who he would then also take seven damage. And inevitably, Nekruzar just burns everyone out because there's Hollow Mind and Nekruzar and all kinds of like just weird best case scenario draw shenanigans are just filling your hand but then i'd like discard everything and i'm also playing blue so anything you play might just get countered anyway so you know good times for anyone out there who really loves the idea of just punishing people for drawing but also like it also worked really well against other decks that just could not stop themselves from drawing cards like uh niv mizzet draco genius not draco genius uh, the niv mizzet on deck yeah, you could just go right ahead and just draw all the cards you want there, buddy. Prepare to die. As long as you don't kill Nekozar, that is, of course. Yeah, Nekozar was the mimeoplasm of this set, where it's just like everyone wanted to play that deck. I mean, there are other reasons why the Grixis deck was hard to find, but we'll get into that in a bit. All right, so what's our next deck? Let's see, the next deck was the Power Hungry deck. That was the Jun-colored one. Mm-hmm. Its commander was Prosh, the Sky Raider of Care. This is uh, Eric Bondi, uh, Rival Duel's favorite card. He's a dragon. He enters the battlefield, and he gives you X01 Cobalt tokens equal to the number, equal to the amount of mana you spent casting him. So similar to Jaleva, the more he died, the more one, the more zero one tokens you got, right? But the tokens are zero ones. They can't really do anything. I mean, you must be playing a bunch of Anthem effects, right? No, not really, because Prosh has this other piece of text where he can sacrifice another creature, and he himself then gets plus one plus O. And that basically means, like, you cast Prosh, I believe his mana cost was five? He's six initially. Uh, he's six initially? Yep. So he's six initially. So he shows up, he has six zero one kobolds just waiting around, praising him, rubbing his back, getting him ready for when he does decide to attack. And what's his original attack? He's a 5-5 five, five by nature. Right. So he attacks. You have a 5-5 five, five coming at you. Now you've got a choice. Block the 5-5 five, five or don't. But your best option is bl- block the 5-5. Five, five. Because, because if you don't, then if he's going to enjoy. Those. He's going to enjoy some snacky cakes. William? Yes. Right, I'm sorry. I was cutting out there for a second. You know what you say about him? I said, because if you don't block him, then Prosh is going to enjoy himself some snacky cakes. And he's probably going to one or two shot you. Yeah. Prosh is going to eat that face. Let's see who did Pro- who came in the Prosh deck other than him? Because in all honesty, I can't think so, of any other. Like I can't remember who the other red green. So black I'll give you black. a hint. Gideon recently arrested them in his Uncharted Realm story of back on Ravnica. No, what? It was the Shatter Game Brothers. Oh yeah, damn. Shadow Game Brothers were pretty good, I guess. I mean, you know, we had an entire, what was it, like, week dedicated to them. So mm-hmm. listeners, I believe, picked them out. We did. In fact, we should probably do that again this year. Mm-hmm. So if you have a favorite commander that you would like to see the entire website collaborate on, send us an email at, at commandmentercast at gmail.com. So, Shadow Game Brothers, do you want me to read this one off for you? Yeah, go right ahead. All right. Because I'm really looking for something. So, the Shadow Game Brothers are actually a squad of three goblins. For one black, red, green, you get a 3-3 Goblin Artificer, and they come with three three abilities. 
Pay two and a black, sack a creature. Each other player sacks a creature. Pay two and a red, sack an artifact. Each other player sacrifices their artifact. But what about enchantments? Well, if you pay two and a green and sacrifice that, each other player sacrifices an enchantment. So, this is just a really good way to just play stacks. Yeah, basically the only thing they didn't deal with were lands. But if you could find a way to convert someone's lands into creatures, which you could do in green, you could kill them. If you could find some way to convert those lands into enchantments, which I believe you can do in blue, so he's not doing that at the moment. But, you know, other, like pretty much it was a, a end-all, be-all of, you know what, here are three problem issues. But here's three types of cards that red, green, and black have trouble dealing with. And we're going to give you a commander specifically for dealing with those cards. Because black can't really deal with enchantments. Red really can't deal with enchantments either. So, you know what, here we go. A commander that deals with enchantments. Green has trouble dealing with creatures outside of combat. Oh, well, here's black and green. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him with this. And here's artifacts. You know, I don't think either one of these colors has a problem with artifacts outside of maybe black. Yeah, black's the only one that has trouble with artifacts. But, you know, like, pretty much they help black mostly. But in the same token, you could pretty much just use these guys and control and blow up and get rid of any particular problem that was on the board for the most part. Then the gods showed up and kind of ruined their fun. All right, then. So, we have one more deck to talk about in this cycle, and it is one I... Hmm, I see what's going on here. Would you rather I went and did this? Uh, no, no. Alright, so in this, the, the last, um, thing that we really need to discuss is Maroth Will of the Wild. Maroth Will of the Wild is red, green, white. It's a beast. It's an, uh, incarnate beast, I believe. Yep. Beast incarnate. Ele- elemental beast. So pretty much what Maroth is, is he has zero attack, zero defense, and he costs three mana to play. So why in the world would you play a zero, zero for three mana? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because Maroth had this ability where he got plus one, plus one counters added to him for the amount of mana you paid for him from getting him out of your command zone. So when you cast him for three, he shows up as a three-three. That's fair, right? Three-three for three. He dies, he comes back as a five-five for five. He dies, he comes back as a seven-seven for seven. That seems right. Seems fair, right? Right. So the thing here is Marath also had another ability where you could pay a colorless mana and remove a plus one, plus one counter from Marath. And if you did, you got to do one of three different things. A, you got to make a creature token who was XX, where X was equal to the number of counters removed. So say you remove two counters, you make a 2-2. Say you remove one counter, you make a 1-1, and you pay another mana, you make another 1-1, you pay another mana, you make another 1-1, Marath dies. Right? Right. Seems fair. Option B, you remove the X counters, and Marath deals X damage to target creature or player. So you remove a bunch of X counters, and you could kill a single player, or you could kill whatever the biggest threat on the board is, depending on how many counters Marath had on them. Right? Yep. And the third ability was you could remove a counter from a raft and it put a plus one plus one counter on target creature. I believe it's target creature you control. Yep, just on target creature. Oh, just target creature? Yeah, better than I thought. So, yeah, you could just pay X, remove, let's say, three counters. Remember that 2-2 we made earlier? We need a 5-5 now? We'll kill Marath, turn the 2-2 into a 5-5. Now we have a 5-5 token instead. And Marath now in our command zone again, and we can bring him back. Now, the good thing for Marath is is that once you start including a bunch of cards that doubled up the plus one, plus one counters or put more plus one, plus one counters on them or produced more mana, Marath in and of himself could basically become a beating of a card. Say, for instance, you kind of combine Marath with Doubling Season. Oh, now every time you take a plus one, plus one counter off of him, if you target him with that plus one counter, he gets two. 
if you decide to make a token, now you get two tokens for the cost of the one you would have made, right? Yep. But if you combine that with, uh, what's the artifact that sacrifices a creature? Ashnot's Altar? Phyrexian yes. Altar? Ashnot's Altar. There we go. So you combine Marash, Ashnot's Altar, and Doubling Season, and, you know, mm, no, you don't need it. But actually, yeah, you do still need at least one piece of mana to make the first token, right? Yep. So you use one mana, you make a token, you feed that token, what, Doubling Season sees a token, gives you two. You feed one of those tokens into the altar. Now you have two mana again. Use that two mana to target Marath. Put plus one, plus one counter on him. Use the other mana to take the counters off. Make another token. You have now three tokens. You repeat this process over and over and over again. And you have what is proverbially infinite tokens, infinite creatures, infinite burn spells, and they're all as big as however you want them to be. Mm, that seems good. Yeah. And Marath pretty much... In a way, he's like the Gabe of this particular set. With the right cards, he just combos off and randomly just kills players. Yep. Now the important and that's all that you really need to talk about because well, there was 99 other cards that came in this thing, but I don't really think any of them are really worth talking about except for like two or three. I mean, we, we could got- mention that Marath was also the first one to get a bit of a rata because they had to say X can't be zero, otherwise you just keep making zero zero elementals for free. Yeah. And, you know, and if you had something that, like, activated when a creature died, you know. Or even just that. the, or even just any anthem. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'll pay zero and make infinite one ones. That seems okay too. But there was, now despite Calvin's protests and denial, there was in fact another commander in there, one that I tried to play for a bit. No, there wasn't. The Hiji Honored One. For, what's that? For two red, green, white. It's a 4-4 four, four beast that wants to Sounds be Edric so badly. Whenever a creature attacks one of your opponents or a planeswalker and opponent controls, that creature gets 2-0 until end of turn. Oh boy, was this guy a disappointment. And primarily because he lacked one point of power. Because you see, kids, when someone takes 21 points of commander damage, they're dead. It's kind of like infect. You can't wash it off. If any one commander deals 21 points to you, well, thank you for playing. So, for a commander to have 7 power, that turns into a 3-turn clock. But the most Gahiji could have, which is himself, the best he can hope to be is a 6-4. And that's only 4 turns of death. Yeah, but there can't be that big of a difference between turn 4 and turn 3, can there? Apparently there is. Because once you get someone up to 20... Apparently there is. Because you go 6, 12, 18, you still need to deal 3 more points of commander damage. But if you're playing something like Karthus, who is a 7-7, then it, it just kills him that one turn faster. And once you know it, it always ends up being that one turn that would have turned things around. All right, then. So, so ranking these five, should we? I did uh, the last You can go ahead and rank these if you want, unless you want me to do it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Yeah, I don't, this one I'm actually pretty good on, because this was actually the first set review that we got to do under when I was running Commander Cast. Mm-hmm. Actually, I still am running Commander Cast. Unless you're re- hearing this sometime in the future, in which case I have somehow not owned Commander Cast and have therefore passed it on to Calvin. All right. So, Evasive Maneuvers was the deck I personally reviewed, uh, but that one was just incredible weak sauce. Uh, the Commander was pretty much carried that one. Uh, the mind. Oh, but he didn't carry that deck nearly as much as Maroc carried his. This Actually, is... Maroc didn't carry his deck. Maroc was his deck. That was pretty much it. You were basically playing Maroc in 99 lands. 
I'll which just... is something you can do. You can do that. That is an option. You can just take buy the deck or just get Maroth and then just get 99 lands, and you'll have a deck that was pretty much just as effective as the nat- the nature of the beast deck was. All right. So Derevi and Marath, uh pretty bad. They're, 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 they're fighting each other for the bottom, I'm guessing, in your opinion. Um, Derevi at least had some playability. It was that Jaleva deck, the Grixis one, that really stinked things up. Partly because it was so split heavy down the middle. Oh, it wasn't that. That wasn't what made the Mindsees deck so damn difficult. No, no, we'll get to that in, in just a second. Aloru was probably the second most playable, just because it was artifacts and life gain, and life gain actually just helps facilitate many strategies. The best deck by far was the Brosh deck, the Jun one. Like, just yeah. in the box, it had the infinite combo built in the box. Because, yeah. you remember, that deck came with Primal Vigor, which is like Double mm-hmm. Season, only it works for everyone, and only doubles plus one plus one counters, not all the counters. Not all the counters. No, just plus one, plus one counters. Which, that should not have been in the Frosh deck. It should have been in the Marath deck. It because Marath actually gave a damn about plus one, plus one counters with Frosh. He does, but it's not like something Frosh, like, would lose sleep over if he didn't have it. Yeah. So, I, the Frosh deck was more or less just the best deck you could have out of there. Like, I still really liked the blue-white deck. I think that's still probably my favorite of those decks. But the Mind Seas Grixis deck had its own problems. So what you have to understand, dear listener, is that at this point, the Commander product was still a limited print run. This was the first time that Watsi was revisiting the Commander product as a featured thing. And so they didn't really know how much to expect from the second print run. Like, the first one could have just been a flash in the pan, and with this, everything just goes down. Like, they think, they thought they printed enough, but no. Turns out, no, you didn't. Because in the Grixis deck, they had what ended up being a very playable legacy card in the form of True Name Nemesis. Yeah, but... So, go back to Days of Yore, and there was a card called Progenitus. It costs two of each color of mana, so ten mana. Ten mana. And it's a ten-ten, but it has protection from everything. Which now, is funny. Yes, which is very funny. But It has protection from Wrath of God, but Wrath of God can still kill it. So there is no protection from the Wrath of God. Unless that god is Heliod, in which case he has protection from Heliod. Yes, but he doesn't have to have, but he doesn't have protection from the Wrath of God, so if Heliod is the god and Heliod decides to wrath, Progenesis will still go down. Yes. Now, you may be wondering, dear listener, what, William, why are you talking about a five-color commander for a three-color deck? Did they, the Watsi mess up and just give everyone a free Progenesis in their deck? Well, kind of. So, so let's take Progenesis and strip You know what his problem is? He's got cost way too much mana. So let's strip some of that mana off. Yeah. Like, let's go ahead and make him just one color. That way he can go in just any deck of that color. And you know what? Let's go ahead and make that color blue. That that seems like a very fair color to put it in. We'll put it in the deck that has draw draw cards and counter spells and no, you can't have that and no, you can't have this. And you know what? Ten mana is definitely way too much. Let's not make it ten blue. Let's go ahead and make it two blue and one colorless. And you know what? Yeah, but for that, we're going to have to bring that body size down. You can't be a ten ten for two. No, no, no. Three one seems much more fair. So, you follow me through here to this letter? So far, we have a three mana, three one, that has protection from everything. But, you know, just in case that wasn't stupid enough, let's go ahead and make him a merfolk. 
That way, Fish can go ahead and play a three-mana three Progenitus. Now, here's the main thing. Now, True Name Nemesis doesn't have protection from everything. Pretty much, True Name Nemesis comes in, he picks a player, and he has protection from that player. So anything that player does, does not affect him. So in a multiplayer game with five decks, he can show up, he can have protection from whoever's playing the Nature of the Beast deck for whatever reason, but the other three players still have full range to deal with the True Name Nemesis. But in a 1v1 game, if you do such a thing, you name your opponent. Your opponent only really has you, and there are no other players. So he has protection from everything your opponent could do. Yep. Not protection from anything you could do, because you can now enchant him if you so chose. You could target him for other things if you, you so give chose. Him you him an Umazawa Yeah, you could do what you want with him. But your opponent has to just kind of sit there and just take it. Now, remember our good old friend, the Scavenging News? Um, turn, so that card was expensive because it was super playable in Legacy. And that's the thing about these exclusive cards to this commander deck, is that they are legal in Vintage and Legacy, as well as casual play. And when you tell a blue player in Legacy that they can have a three mana progenitus, they're gonna jostle pretty hard to get that three mana progenitus. So because of that, the Grixis deck was pretty much sold out everywhere. In fact, I remember one store in my area that shall remain nameless because they are the second most hated game store in the area, where the owner actually sold off his entire stock of Grixis decks online and didn't save any for his actual customers before they even had a chance to walk in and claim them. Like, I went there and picked up my Bant deck because that was the only store I knew of that that would have it. But all the but from the get-go, all the Grixis decks were just gone. And this also happened to be, it came out, I think, right before a major legacy Eternal event. Weekend. Eternal Weekend came around. Yep. So Eternal Weekend came around. This product, I believe, came out the week before, the week of. Yep. Like, it came out before the tournament. So any legacy player out there that wanted four copies of this all went out and did the best that they could to scour the internet, scour the stores, all of the targets, and pick up as many copies of this as they could so they could just have the four copies of the nameless merfolk. Now, this wasn't so bad if they sold the rest of the deck to you at a discounted price, which is actually how I got mine. There was a guy who bought four Christmas decks and then sold the rest of them for $25 a piece. Because, like, he doesn't need these other 99 cards. He just plays Legacy. So for roughly that entire weekend, I believe, pretty much about, like, two months after the product came out, you could get the other four decks. But there's no way you could get the Mindseize deck unless you happen to know someone like the gentleman William was discussing. Yep. It got to the point where Watsy actually let stores order cases that had two of the Christmas decks and just a random assortment of the other. It would be three random ones of the last four because that was the only one that would sell. So there are two other things I want to hit, hit on before we move on. One, the exclusive, the commander exclusive format card for this one was Opal Palace, which... Opal Palace is amazing. Yes. I put it in every commander deck except Derevi, and even Derevi's going to get one at some point if, like, every other deck has one. And here's why. So it taps for a colorless. So you can play in Legacy and Vintage if you really wanted to, but then you're just playing a non-basic land that you only have four copies of that might as well be basic instead of not. But it also has pay one and tap, make one mana of any color, and was it in your commander's identity? I actually need to check this again. It was the color of any color in your commander's identity. 
Yes. It's pretty much the, yep. it's pretty much like an upgraded version a, of what Command Tower was. Yes, it's a filter land for your co- commander's color identity. If you spend this mana to cast your commander, however, it enters the battlefield with a number of additional 1-1 counters on it, equal to the number of times it's been cast from the command zone this game. So you remember how Marath and Frosh and Jalevis scaled with however many times you cast it? But what if we just gave that ability to every commander ever? Turns out... It's a beautiful card. It is so good. Like, even for the first time you're casting your commander, it comes into play with an extra 1-1 counter. That is big for Kalia, because that means she can come into play and not be locked out by Elish Noi. Mm-hmm. And you could use it for, like, cards like uh, any of your commanders that had very low cost, like Reach the Redeemed or Ashley Pilgrim or any of them, because now you can play them. This was a card. This is a card that goes in pretty much any commander deck. Because as long as, what was it? Even like a colorless um, artifact deck, it would go in there, right? Yes. Because you could use it for Karn. I mean, it would produce a color with your mana, which would be colorless, and Karn would just show up with a plus one, plus one counter, or your Eldrazi would show up with that many more plus one, plus one counters on them. Yep. The only, In fact, the only reason you wouldn't do it is because your commander is of a special type that came out the next year. But before we get to that, there is one last thing that I wanted to note about these decks, is that with the 2011 Wedge decks, it gave us some incredibly, some much-needed options for those wedges. Like, before that, we had the 2011 decks, like Kalia and Gabe, we only had the dragons. Dragons were the only options we had. It was play a dragon or play five-color and pretend that you're a wedge deck. With the 2013 decks, the theme appeared to be, hey, so we have a bunch of shard-color decks that don't really have a defining commander for that archetype. Let's go ahead and fill these holes in here. Like, you want to play a bant blink, blink deck? Well, maybe use Janara or Rafiki if you want to be aggro. But there isn't really a defensive blink commander. Well, now you have Rune. You want to play Esper Karn? Well, now we have Sindri. You want to play Speed, Draw, Thrax, over Wheels and Windfalls and, and all that? Well, now you've got Nekazar. You want a token commander? Well, well, Rith is a thing, but let's just give you Morath. Morath is a lot better than Rath. If you want, like, a commander that has the ability to answer stuff that the color combination normally doesn't get to answer, here's your Siege Gang commanders. You also now have a triple color goblin. So if you want to play a red, green, black goblin deck, you now have that option because goblins yes. come in those colors. Yes, your Prost is literally just his own sack outlet, which I actually remember was Eric Bonvi's main complaint for most of the Jun commanders that he wanted to play. Like, he wanted to play a token kind of Jun deck, but none of them actually were sack outlets that made use of it. All right, then. So now we're done with the Commander 13. Let's move on to last year's version of the Commander, which is Commander 2014. came out November 7th of 2014, and it introduced five new Commanders. But these five new Commanders they introduced were a little bit different from what the other Commanders were because they were not creatures. No, no, they were not. In fact, from the first time that these were spoiled at San Diego Comic-Con that year, there was a literal shitstorm going on about these new things. So for the first time ever, a planeswalker could be your commander. Now, here comes the point in Commander where Wizards started, well, last year, Wizards started playing around with the Command Zone. If you notice, all five of those commanders had some type of an ability that involved the command zone, whether it be Derevi no longer needing to pay the commander cost, or if it comes in, you get this amount of things for it coming into the command zone with, like, Marath or Prosh or Jaleva, or you had, like, Alora who sits in your command zone and gives you some type of bonus. Yeah, it's like they looked at Skullbriar from 2011 and went, you know what was fun? Skullbriar. Skullbriar was a lot of fun. What, what else can we do with that? 
And then later, they wanted to figure out a way for you to get enchantments to be your commander. So they came up with the God Cycle. Pretty much the God Cycle were gods that came in and they were into the battlefield and there would be enchantments. But if you had enough of a particular mana color among permanents you controlled, they would turn into creatures. So yeah, you have these enchantments that may be a creature to hurt your opponent. So now your commander can, you have commanders that can avert their commander cost or can at least for some reason give you a reason to recast them multiple times. You can put enchantments into your command zone and they can show up and potentially be creatures. So they decided to take it one step further and now they wanted to make planeswalkers your commander. Now each of these five planeswalkers have a little line underneath them that says this card can be played as your commander. It doesn't have to be your commander. It can be in a 99 if you so chose, but you probably want them as your commander because pretty much all five of them were pretty awesome. Yes, indeed. And I just want to say it is really darn to have that one line of text on the very bottom on below all that wall of text. Like, they, I get that they did it for dramatic... Four abilities. <laughs> yeah, like, these these Planeswalkers have four abilities. Like, these are the second through sixth Planeswalkers to ever have four abilities. And that that one line on the very bottom just looks really awkward. Right. But, you know, hey, it worked. Yep. So... So, let's see here. So, let's the start, first well, deck was... Uh, well, hold on, hold on. Let's go ahead and start with the new commander... Uh, the new mechanic they came up with. Because this... Uh, lieutenant? Exactly. Okay. So Lieutenant was a commander where each one of these decks... Now, the previous years, all of the decks were triple colored. We had the Wedge set. We had the Shard set. For Commander 14, in order to kind of balance things out, every deck was a single color. It was white. There was a blue one. There was a black one. There was a red one. There was a green one. And each deck had a new mechanic with a creature on it that had an ability called Lieutenant. Basically, it's a creature that shows up. You can cast it from your deck, and it's a normal creature. Not from your deck. You can cast it, and it's a normal creature. It has its regular stats and abilities or whatever it is, and blah, 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 blah. But because it had Lieutenant as the mechanic, if the commander of your deck was uh, currently present on the battlefield with it, it gained some type of extra ability or bonus feature added onto it. Yep, and those ones were really cool. We got, like, a dragon, a kraken, a beast, a demon, and an angel, if I remember correctly. Yes, the angel was the white one, the demon was the black one, the dragon came in the red one, the kraken came in the blue one, and the beast was in the green one. All right, so not the other thing to point out with this one is that this is the first time they said, you know what? We don't want that that thing that happened last year where one deck just sells out way more than the other ones. Um, you know, just go, you know, just tell us how much you want and we'll print it. As long as people keep wanting it, we are going to keep printing it. And until the demand stops, we're not going to stop printing it and shoving it down every Walmart and Target's throats. We are going to make damn sure that people can get their hands on these things. And you know what? They're still out in that Target. It's almost a year later and Target still has these things. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, so go let's ahead. move on to these uh, commanders. The yes. commanders that the well, the legends that they used. Well, not legends. The planeswalkers that they used. Okay, so you want to go ahead and touch on what kinds of planeswalkers they're using specifically? Now, now these planeswalkers were people who were either from Magic's past or were brand new planeswalkers introduced into Commander Story. Several of which had been hinted at or talked about, or they were characters from, that were that held prominent roles in before what was in the flavor of the mending occurred, which basically weakened planeswalkers, which allowed wizards to print them as cards. Because prior to the mending, planeswalkers were basically gods that could do whatever they wanted, go wherever they wanted, and do whatever they wanted. 
So in essence, we are getting our first cycle of pre-mending Planeswalkers as trading cards. Something Watsi said they could not do because they were just way too powerful. So let's see here. The Planeswalkers were Nahiri, the Lithomancer, mm-hmm. Teferi, Tempuro, Archmage, and this, and I'm going in Wooberg order. So that's white, blue, black, red, and green. The Nahiri was white, Teferi was blue, the black one was Obnixilis of the Black Oak. Yeah, you the remember, you remember that demon guy that from, uh, that's hanging around in the car right now? Yeah, this is where he yeah. got to start. Well, when we first saw Nixilis, he was a legendary creature who was once a planeswalker, but somehow lost his spark. Yeah, this is and him way before that. This is like back, 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 way back. He wasn't even a demon. He was just a human at this particular this time. This is like, this is like Star Wars prequel old for him. Right. And, you know, he has his spark and he does his thing. And there was, uh, Doretti, the scrap servant, scrap servant. Doretti, used car salesman. Yep, and the main thing for Doretti that made him important is because he was the first time that we got a chance to see a goblin as a planeswalker. Oh, which, but let's Calvin be honest, Slobad was a planeswalker for like five seconds. No, I'm talking about like planeswalker card. I mean, we Slobad might have been a planeswalker for like five minutes or whatever the case may be, but he didn't live long enough in order to garnish himself a card. And after Doretti, we have uh, Fraley's, the Larwin's Fury. She's an elf. Lana Wars Fury. She is half elf, half human, 100% awesome. I said Larwin. I meant Landawar. I'm getting my, I'm getting my fictional lands mixed up. Too many elves and too many elves. Both planes begin with L. They both love elves. Strange. Coincidence? I think not. Alright then. So, let's go ahead and talk about the, uh, actually, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the individual decks who had legendary creatures. Uh, so you want the, the white one? The first one was, uh, the white one was, uh, Forged in Stone. It yep. was a white deck. It was led by Nahiri. It was primarily a deck based around equipment and token production. You could get creatures on the field. You could find these various equipments. Nahiri searched out equipment and could be used. It was hinted at from several, it, it was rumored that she may have been what is known as the Stoneforge Mystic, but that rumor has been uh, disproven. She's pretty much the great, great, great ancestor of what Stoneforge Mystic inevitably became. She is the progenitor of that entire culture. Right. So she pretty much loved weapons, and she could give you, her ultimate was basically you got this giant sword, but she had this ability where she could make 1-1 one, one core tokens, and she could search out equipment from your library and from your graveyard and put them onto the battlefield for you. Um, not from the deck. It was just you cheat an artifact from your hand. No, it was from your hand. Play. It wasn't from the deck. It was from your hand. You could she use is a pre-manning Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, you could get an artifact from your, you can get a equipment from your hand or from your graveyard, put it on a battlefield. So if equipment got destroyed, outside of a token, version of it for token equipment you could get it back and because you made tokens you could just get equipment from your hand slap it on the field make a token equip it to it all that stuff the deck basically was fairly good and it had a card in it that people thought was going to be the next um legacy staple council's judgments yeah council's judgment uh no 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 that was in conspiracy no, it was a, it was like a priest. I forget what it was. Oh, banisher like, priest. Banisher priest. It, it was a creature that like came in and it prevented your opponents from doing something. I forget what it was. Uh, I'm gonna look this up. Well, you looked that up real quick. I'll continue talking about it then. But yeah, basically, like this particular card, everybody looked at it and thought it was gonna make the splash and legacy. To it was containment priest. Containment priest. There we go. 
And Containment Priest, if you go ahead, you can read it off if you want, Will. Uh, Containment Priest is a... It, it, it's a hate bear. It's a 2-2 two, two for 2 with Flash Human Clerk. If a non-creature with token... If a non-token creature would enter the battlefield and it wasn't cast, exile it instead. Which is actually just a really powerful card against stuff like, oh, I don't know, Dredge and Show and Tell, stuff like that. And, you know, it, it does get play in Legacy, but not to the point where um, Nameless One was. Yeah, no, this is a, this is a cyborg card for a lot of decks, like Death and Taxes, uh, Miracles. That's a nice Dredge deck you have, dear. It'd be a damn shame if something were to happen to it. Yeah, and it actually just really hurts Death and Taxes, too, because when they That's flash it... That's a nice Death and Taxes deck you got, dear. It'd be a damn shame if something were to happen to it. Just because you actually have to hard start hard casting your creatures. Like, if you activate your Aether Valve, they can just flash it in response and ruin any plans you had. Uh, the next deck that we have well, here on. on the list... These hmm? weren't just commanded by Planeswalkers. We still got, in, in fact, still got a cycle of new legendary creatures for this. I don't remember who they were. The white deck had a little guy called Jazal Goldmane. Which, oh, okay. And if that sounds familiar, it's because he is a Johnny's brother. So the other thing that they did, besides bringing in some pre-manning planeswalkers to be your commander, is they brought back story characters from Legends Pat from Magic's Past that we didn't get to see as cards before. So, of course, we get to see old Jazzle Hands himself. Jazal is a 4-mana four 4-4 four cat warrior with first strike, and he has 5 attacking creatures you control get plus X plus X until end of turn where X is the number of attacking creatures. So he really played into the token aspect of the white deck. Right. Uh, but yeah, he was really good. He's very powerful to an extent, you know, very useful. And let's see, that's pretty much all I can really say about him. I mean, he's a legendary cat, but there's other legendary cats out there that are a little bit more dominant than he is. Green mass. Alright, so, so who's our blue? Let's, uh, who's on blue? Well, how's about this? Blue is a deck that I would like to discuss separately. Let's move, we'll acknowledge blue. The blue deck was pure through time. And we will come back to that after we go through a couple of the other ones, because so, so the other two, the three, two of the other three decks, we can knock out really, really quickly. All right. In that case, I'll take care of the black and the green ones. Yep. So for black, that one was Omnixus the Black Oath. He was a five mana planeswalker for three loyalty. He said plus two, each opponent loses one life. You gain life equal to life loss this way. Minus two, put a five five demon creature with flying on the battlefield. You lose two life. And his limit break was get an emblem. With pay to sack a creature, you gain X life and draw X card for X is the sacrifice creature's power. So, which is a very grindy pl- planeswalker commander, where you just got, you plus two him, gains the life, minus two him, make it even. Plus two, minus two, plus two, minus two. And his creature counterpart is my current model black commander, Ghoulcaller Gissa. For five mana, you got a three four human wizard, who said pay black and tap, sack another creature, Put X-2-2 two, two black zombie creature tokens onto the battlefield, where X is the sacrifice creature's power. So she is super fun to play in a kind of zombie token deck. Now, there have been mixed reports on how good the black precon was. I am on record as saying that it was just bad was. if you were playing against regular decks, because so many of its removal was based on non-black creature dies. So if you played against your friends and they had black cards, well, then you're just out of luck. You just cursed. I did. And you're going to have to bleep that at 157. I am sorry. I'll bleep. I'll get around to doing it. Yep. There is no swearing on Monday Night Magic or Card Advantage. So, the black deck was just... Eh. But Gissa is a very fun command. So, talk to us about red. So, the red deck was built 
from scratch. And its commander was Doretti. Doretti was a goblin, as we previously stated. Doretti's abilities were you could draw cards with him. You could get artifacts out of your graveyard with him. And he had an emblem that made it so that your artifacts, when they left the field, would come back. I miss... I mentally can't remember how much. I believe it was like plus two, minus two, and like minus seven or minus six or something it like that. It was minus ten, but that's not as relevant. Uh, yeah, whatever. Something like that. But yeah, pretty much Doretti was the leader of what would be come to known as the Red Reanimator deck. Because it was a deck designed about bringing artifacts back. But, you know, those artifacts typically were creatures or mana rocks or something of that nature, which you could use. The legendary creature that came with this deck was Thelden of the Dirt King. Thelden of the Third Path. Thelden's King was the card that was the thing. That's right. This is my third king. (laughs) (laughs) Matt will be happy to hear that. So stuck in my head from when Matt said that. I can't, like, to me, he's Thelden of the Third King. Um, so Felden, he also had a kind of a reanimator style effect to him. You could, what was it? It was, he's three mana? Yep, three mana. Two colors and a red. And I forget what his physical stats were. He was a human and... He was some number that let him live on the field. Yeah, he was like a, I believe he was like a two, three or something of that nature. And he had an ability where you could pay, I believe it was three mana and tap him. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe it was the same cause as his thing. Like, I think it was like a one colorless double red or something like that. He was one colorless double red. His ability was two and a red. Yeah, it was it was one of those two. You, it's basically three mana, but it's a mono red deck, so it's triple red either way you look at it. And his ability was you pay the three mana, you tap him, and you put an artifact creature token onto the battlefield that is a copy of a creature that's in your graveyard. So, say, for instance, your progenitor, no, progenitor's shuffle is back. Uh, all right, Solemn Simulacrum. There we go. So you have a Solemn Simulacrum in your graveyard, correct? You tap Felden, you get a token that's a copy of Solemn. You get his Enter the Battlefield effect, and the token that Felden made were extremely fragile. So fragile, in fact, that they had haste, and they would sacrifice at the end of your turn. So pretty much the token would show up, do its thing, and then explode. This was also very flavor-based because, storyline-wise, Felden had a wife who had passed away, and he did what he could to try to make an artificial version of her, but none of them ever really were successful. So, flavor-wise, win. Card-wise, win. Because now we can put things into our graveyards and be able to bring them back and make copies of them and get stuff for it. So you get a nice little reanimator-style deck without actually reanimating. Yep, and this deck just actually had the best value. Like, this is the deck that people were going nuts over. Yeah. Came with, like, a worm coil engine and a solemn simulacrum. It literally just had a solemn in the deck. And it came with a battle sphere mirror. It was like you'd, like, use Felden to bring him back to make a copy of him. But then the battle sphere mirror token would come in and make mirror token for you. And the mirror tokens, it made stay even though it died. But that's okay because you had Doretti, so you could use Doretti to sacrifice the mirror token because they're artifacts to bring the battle sphere back permanently, the actual one, in case you didn't want to go through the three mana cast, um, three mana cost for it again. The deck pretty much had like unbelievable synergy and was one of the crowning jewel for any person who loves red because it was an amazing deck and it had so much stuff going for it. And I actually feel the same way about the last deck that we're going to be talking about from this cycle, and as well as tonight. 
So the Mono Green deck surprised me quite a bit. Like, this wasn't the deck that I was reviewing that year, but I picked it up anyway, and wow. So the Planeswalker for Alias Landlord's Fury doesn't look that special. She starts at 3, you plus 2, you basically get a Landlord Elf token. It's a 1-1 Elf that taps for green. Minus 2, destroyed her artifact or enchantment, so it's just a naturalized. And then Limit Break, minus 6, draw a card for each green creature you control. Okay, not a super exciting limit break, but a very functional one. And one I've actually gotten enough a couple of times. But Freya Elise was just so good. Like, she's actually just kind of a mini elf ball deck, but with the added versatility of being able to naturalize something. The true standout from this deck for many people, though, was Titania, Protector of Argon. For five mana, you got a 5-3 elemental. It says, when Titania enters the battlefield, you get a target land from your graveyard back to the battlefield. And then whenever a land you control is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, put a 5-3 elemental token onto the battlefield. This was just, she was such such a weird and bizarre card when she first saw it. She excited so many people and made so many horrible cards playable. And I have a friend who loves this t- Titania deck. And that deck is super scary and super competitive. Like, it, it's just incredible. For a brief example of what made Titania good, is you put a copy of Crucible of Worlds into your library, into your deck, right? Crucible lets you take a land and play it from your graveyard as though you had it in your hand. You then re- include, let's say, Terramorphic Expanse, right? So you play the Terramorphic Expanse, you have the Crucible of Worlds, you have Titania. You sacrifice the Terramorphic Expanse, you go find yourself a forest. And then Titania gives you a creature. And then the next turn, you take the Crucible of World, you bring the Terramorphic Expanse back from your graveyard, put it back onto the battlefield, and then you sacrifice it again and find another forest, and now you have another creature. And you basically have, for a simple combination, a way to continuously get these big creatures that Titania was just throwing around. No, that's not even the thing. Like, what Elemental was forever laughed at as one of the worst magic cards of all time. It's a four-mana elemental that says, as he enters the battlefield, you sack any number of untapped forests. What elemental's power and toughness are each equal to the number of forests sacrificed as he enters the battlefield? So to just make this thing on curve, you would have to have seven to eight lands total, and then you're losing almost half of them to make this thing playable. But in Titania, that just means that you're getting that many five threes. Like, Wood Elemental just became super playable when Titania came out, and that is a scary, scary thought. So he basically became a Avenger of Zendikar, but instead of 1-1 one, one plants, it's three, it's 5-3 creatures. Yeah, that's, that's actually a very apt description. The deck itself, though, was more Elf Ball than anything. In fact, you could probably swap at least for Missouri, who was also in the deck, and have a very effective Elf deck, which I did see. I had a preference for Fraley Stone, and I absolutely love her. So, Calvin. Now that we're here, we're going to circle back around, and we're going to talk about the Peer Through Time deck, which was led by Teferi. Teferi has six mana for his cost. Four colors, double blue. And a lot of you might say, why would I pay six mana for a Planeswalker? That's because it's actually Blue's way of lying to you. He's not six mana at all. He has this ability, you see, where you can minus one him and untap up to four target permanents. So even if you use six mana, just lands, you can untap four basic lands, boom. He only really cost you two blue. But the deck in and of itself was filled to the brim with artifacts that produced double mana. Like, uh, Ergolem's Eye. Grand Dynamo. Uh, 
Duran Dynamo, Duran Soaring, right, and all of these various things. So you would pretty much use, let's say, you tap Duran Dynamo, right? That's three mana. You tap, I don't know, let's just go with three, uh, with Dream Hedron. That's six mana. It's all colorless though. And then you tap two islands. You play Teferi, and then you use his minus one ability. You untap everything. He's free. And now you still have the six, seven, eight, you still have the eight mana that you used to tap to get him. Which means you now have eight mana to go ahead and just use that for something else to play. I don't know, maybe a Kraken. Maybe that lieutenant we discussed earlier. Maybe more artifacts. Maybe your point. Yeah, maybe more artifacts. Maybe an Eldrazi or two, depending on what's in the deck. Because in the deck, they actually had a, a couple, a couple of Eldrazi's that came with, I think it was like Artisan of Kozilek, who was like nine mana. It was like a 10-9 or something. No, that was in the black one. No, Artisan of Kozilek came in this too, I believe. Okay, yeah, the Artisan was at Uncommon, so it could have been the ones here. Well, either way. But anyway, whatever, if you're using that. And then on top of that, say for instance, you, he survives, cause he's going to survive, he's blue, why wouldn't he survive? He's going to survive, you have all this mana, now you tap all that mana, you have eight mana sitting around, cause that's what you used last turn to place a fairy, right? Mm-hmm. Now that you have that eight mana, you use to bury again, you untap them, and you now don't have eight mana, you have 14. You can start casting, like, actual legendary Eldrazi's at this point. Yep. Like, well, none of the legendary Eldrazi were in this deck, but if you had put them into your deck, you got that. If you put in other cards, like, say, I don't know, High Tides or any other things that let your, let your mana, for your lands produce more mana than that, you could do that. Teferi had two other abilities. One of them was, like, he gave you an emblem where Planeswalkers could activate their abilities at instant speed, and that was his ultimate. And his first ability allowed you to look at the top two cards of your library and put one of them in your hand and put the other one on the bottom so you could get some card filtering when you weren't. Just mana ramping all the hell. It wasn't just that you could play the Planeswalker abilities at instant speed. It's that you could do it on any player's turn. Yeah, you could do it any time that you could cast an instant. So, you know, if you had him and you got him to his ultimate, you could just go right ahead and just keep doing any of his abilities on anyone's turn once a turn. All right. Now, Mark from Deck Builder Spotlight, as well as the Commander Cast Prime, he absolutely loves this deck. As far as I know, he still has it as just the pure pre-con. And he loves every card in the deck except for the other commander that happened to be in there. Yeah, the other commander in there wasn't really all... Let's just say he wasn't really built for this particular deck. Yeah, the other one, the black one was Ghoul Caller Gessa. And she had a brother who was Stitcher Giraffe. Stitcher Giraffe pretty much exiled two creatures from a graveyard and then gave you a zombie that was pretty much as big as the combined power of those two cards. Like, you know, if you had like a 3-3 three, three and 1 graveyard. Like, remember we talked earlier about Mimeoplasm? Imagine something similar to that, but sucking. And in a single color. Yep, it looks pretty much like Giraffe. Now... Yeah. Outside of Giraffe, though, the mono blue deck was still amazing. Yep, but despite that, it was still the one deck that you could literally find anywhere. Yep, because the, the thing for it was, is like, even though it was pretty much available anywhere you went to go look for it, the red deck was very popular. It was the popular deck. The Forge of the Forge and Stone, that was a deck with the card in it that people thought was going to be for Legacy. Yep, the, so the, the Sworn to Dark, the Sworn to Darkness was the deck that kind of had the mixed reviews and mostly like kind of sucked depending on who you asked. The Guild by um, Gilded by Nature, the green deck, was the middle child. 
and Peer Through Time was the sleeper deck. It's one of the, it's probably the most powerful deck out of the five, but no one really paid it any attention because blue players could play much better cards than what's currently in that deck. But the issue for it is, is that it's also blue and playing a mono blue deck in commander has always been unanimously frowned upon for the most part. It's very difficult to see anyone let a blue player live long enough to actually enjoy their time playing it. Unless, of course, the blue player is just warping time themselves or peering through time and then forcing themselves into the game against your will, as blue players are wont to do. Alrighty then. So, other things that we'll be talking about real quickly as we get closer to our end. So, the Commander Sphere was this set's Commander relevant card. It's like Command Tower in that it taps for any color of mana in your color, in your commander's color identity. Only instead of a land, this time, it was a three mana artifact. Not only that. But it also had another ability on it too though. Yeah. You can sack it to draw a card. And that's it. You didn't have to tap it to activate it. You can literally just sack it to draw a card. Which is like, yep, Mindstone and Dreamstone Hedron, and they have, well you gotta tap it and spend some amount of mana in order to crack this egg. But no, Commander Sphere just says, you know, it's about, if you're about, uh, if you're about to fight a wrath, you're gonna lose this anyway, just sack it now, get some value. And the good thing for it was, is that in the mono red deck, since it had the heavy artifact regeneration, re, like, turning, picking things up, you could either tap it, sack it, draw a card, you could feed it to Duretti to get something bigger, you could use it for mana, if you needed it in, if you needed it from your graveyard, you could sacrifice a soul ring for it and get it back, and if you needed to get rid of it and you needed the extra mana, you could sacrifice it to get back soul ring. To Duretti, of course. Or if you just need to draw the card, you get to sack it again and draw the card again. It was very diverse. Very, it, it played a lot of roles in the mono red deck. And in several of the other decks, it pulled its own weight. Yep. The last thing I wanted to mention about this cycle was the offering cycle. Ah, the offering cycle. The offering cycle was five cards that were in each of the deck. Well, five cards, one in each deck of its respected color. And the offering cycle was the cycle where I'm going to do something. And then you're going to get the option to do something, but you're not going to do it to me. Or you're not going to, or I'm going to do something for this person, and I'm going to get this. And I'm going to do something for somebody else, and then I'm going to get this as well. So what was it? The green one, I believe you could, when you cast the green one, you got a small army of tokens. And uh, one opponent of your choosing got a small army of tokens. And then the second effect on it also gave you a really large creature. And then you could choose a different opponent to give the really large creature to. Meaning you have an army bigger than what their total... You, you have a t- equally on the board, the amount is the same. But one person has a lot of creatures, and you can easily attack them with the lot of creatures or just the one big one, and they have to either multi-block or chump block or whatever, and you could dwindle them down. Or the one guy with the really big creature, you could attack him with the armies and just kind of run around the fact that you have a big guy. Or swing at him with your big guy and trade and then just smash him with your tokens. The red one basically dealt damage to a player and then gave the opponent the option to do damage, but he couldn't do it to you, I think it was. And you blew up a land, and the opponent had to blow up a land of his choosing, but it wasn't a land you had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so on and so forth. Each color had these things. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to draw these cards, and you're going to draw these cards, and then I'm going to bounce these creatures. And now he's going to get to bounce these creatures, but as long as those creatures aren't mine, of course. Of course. Of course. All right. And that was the last cycle I really wanted to bring up. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the 2014 monocolor decks? 
2014 monocolor decks were good. The primary thing I enjoyed about this is is that with the way Wizards has printed the overall cycle art, if you're the kind of person who wants a deck of colors, you can get a monocolor deck from the 2014, and you boom, you automatically, if you buy all of them, you already have automatically have five decks of all five single colors. Previously, if you bought all of the two from the wedge and the shards, you now have one of all ten possible triple color combinations. And upcoming, we now have for 2015, the dual decks of just two colors, but they're enemy colors. So once you buy all of those, you have an option to have a commander deck for all five of those colors. Commander deck for every occasion. And predictably, if everything goes as patterned as I can tell, next year we should be getting all of the ally colors. Which means inevitably, for every possible color combination of commanders that you, that are currently available, you could just go right ahead, pick up all five of those decks, and even if you're a new player, you could have an arsenal of decks of the variety, a variety from all across the color building scheme. And tweak them as you see fit, and if you choose not to, you still have them available. And the best thing is, if you do happen to buy all five of them and your opponent, and your opponent, your friends don't play Commander, you can just take your five decks and your friends can also jump into it and play your decks with you and introduce them into the Commander format if you so chose. All right, and that is going to wrap us up here. We went for over two hours here. Wow. Yeah, 20 minutes of this is automatically getting cut because we were talking about Mega Man, and I'm pretty sure a large portion of this might be cut from Truncate Silence. Well, even so, yeah, we we still went almost two hours just talking about three cycles of pre-constructed decks. That is incredible. So, if you want to go ahead and get in touch with us here at CommanderCast, email us, CommanderCast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, we're at CommanderCast. You can also hit us up on Facebook page or our subreddit, our CommanderCast. If you want to follow Calvin, Calvin, where can people reach you? If people want to contact me, it's simple to do. All you have to do is go over to Twitter, hit up at Captain Red Zone, or you can hit me up with an email in Gmail at CaptainRedZone at gmail.com. And if you want to reach me, I am W-I-E Hernandez at, com- at, bleh, Hernandez at gmail.com. I am also BlueRan1409 on the Twitters. And, you, hey, if you like what we do here at CommanderCast, uh, why don't you go ahead and donate just a little bit of your time to mosey on over to your Patreon and see if we can't convince you to give us to get your dollar. You know, we want your dollar. Yes. For just one dollar, you two can help be a Patreon and keep us free on air. Not that we would ever not be free, but, you know, it's got that peace of mind of knowing that, hey, you contribute it to something that you like. Basically, we're free. You're going to get this content for free. But if you put a dollar in, then you can continue to support the site and give the site a chance to potentially produce more content and more stuff. Because then we'll be able to have more time to do more things to give you more stuff that you enjoy. Yep. But for now, that is the end of our show. So thank you all very much for listening. And we will see you all next time.
were the ones who used to make fun of. We were the ones who didn't have to fall in love. Now, here comes the point where I actually kind of wonder where the bumper would be for the back of it. Because, you know, this isn't like dang, this is like where dangly bits normally would go, but this type of show doesn't get like a lot of dangles. It gets like one, and you're lucky if you've got that. Yeah. No, no, you can just like slap the, uh, slap your, uh, dangles on the back end. No, no, no I, I was gonna, typically I, I, what my I, jingles go. 